right, before we get to Malcolm, many of you, of course, are tuning in. Well, many of you tune in every single week, obviously, but this week you've gone out of your way, some of you, to tune in because um, Malcolm Honline, the executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, is stepping aside after more than three decades of helming the umbrella foreign policy group for the U.S. Jewish community. He will remain with the conference in an as-yet-undetermined capacity. Stephen Greenberg, the chairman of the conference, said while Malcolm continues to be a uniquely vital and energetic leader and an irreplaceable asset, he felt that a transition process should be put in place. Specifically, Malcolm will continue to serve. Thank God. I, I added the thank God. To serve the conference as he has so effectively for more than three decades as we seek an executive to assume responsibility for the conference's ongoing operations and activities. Malcolm will then focus on external relations as well as plans to structure the conference for the years ahead. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Mr. Honline, happy Shushan Purim, and welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you, and now that you've said it all, I mean, there's nothing left for me to say to... to uh, well, people do think that they're going to get some clarification this morning, a little right, bit. Right, but so the, the answer is that there's so much distortion and misrepresentation about... A very simple announcement, which I ask, I, I put it together, because I want to have an orderly transition over time, and that many times organizations, you know, face abrupt changes and things, and you don't invest, as I have through 33 years in the conference, and almost 50 years in Jewish uh, professional life, next year will be 50 years, uh, and every time I left a position, I left in place the next successor, and even sometimes two successors. And because we are beginning a process to elect a new chairman or chairperson for the conference in the, in the coming weeks, I felt it was the right time because they kept asking me, what are your plans? And I wanted to make clear that I want I will stay with the conference, I will be there, but I, I hope that we can find somebody who will come in and take over um, some of the responsibilities I will be there. I hope to be able to do more of things to build the structure of the conference for the 21st century or 22nd century and um, focus on the things that uh, uh, where I can make the biggest difference, especially in external affairs of the conference. So it's not any radical change. It's nothing immediate. It usually takes a year or more to have a transition. And I felt that that was the that it's time, and, and there's never a right time or a wrong time to do that, uh, but it was made very clear in the statement about what we intended. It just got distorted when people said he's stepping down, he's stepping up, he's stepping aside, he's dancing around it. Uh, I'm simply, I'll be staying input and in place for a while, and then hopefully we can transition over time. And I must say, I've gotten so many job offers and uh, prospective things. I'm not, I have to reconsider whether I really want to stay or not. <laughs> now, so from from what you're saying, I can surmise that in certain major Jewish organizations, tra- transitions have been difficult. Transitions have not gone very well. In in some cases that you could cite, if we asked you to. Sure. Right. Uh, some of them, as you pointed out, the ones that you've been involved with over the years, it, 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 in all seriousness, have gone very well. You, I mean, I, I could think of organizations that you've left in tremendously good hands that are still extremely active and still fulfilling their role. But as we know, it doesn't always happen that way. Uh, it sounds like whoever takes over or whoever moves in or whoever you're bringing in is simply going to assume some of your day-to-day responsibilities. Would that be a good way to put it? 
that whoever comes in will assume, right. They'll assume some of your day-to-day responsibilities. Right. And they will uh, lead the conference into, uh, I don't know, next decades and uh, hopefully... And you know, everybody else, we have the staff will stay in place. We have people, um, uh, the CEO will, will remain in her position. Everybody else, everybody will stay. I just think that it'll be a... a Sort of reorganization in a sense, but it's it's something to head for the future, to plan for the future, and that's a responsible thing to do. All right, now you know what was uh, of greatest concern to our listeners because I was bombarded with comments and uh, and texts and phone calls once the announcement was made and made public. Um, people want to know if this in any way will affect your regular appearances on JM and the AM. Well, how could I let that affect it? Uh, this is my major source of income. This know. is no this is no Purim <laughs> joke. This is no Purim joke. He means it. He's staying with JM and the AM. Malcolm, I am emphatically announcing that right now to the entire world that you're staying with us. God willing. <laughs> you sound just as enthusiastic as I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I no I had no doubt about it. I didn't raise the question. I even said to someone that if God forbid you would completely retire you know, sit on a beach for the rest of your life, you would still join us Friday morning to analyze the news of the week. How do you like that? How do you like that confidence I had in you? Uh, It's amazing. (laughs) So so we are proud to announce that Malcolm has cleared up and explained to all of us what's happening regarding the transition at the Conference of Presidents. But most importantly, he does not see in any way this affecting his regular weekly appearances on JM in the AM. All right. Now that we have that uh, information, we can move on to some of the news of the week. For those of us out there who still remember the news of the week, after all, it was Purim. After all, there was a lot going on uh, in terms of partying and drinking. It may have uh, removed some of these news stories from everybody's memory. Malcolm, we'll start with this one. The uh, Iranian rejection of U.S. conditions to recertify the nuclear deal is the headline of your daily alert. Uh, it's always confusing to me how this works because of what the president does or doesn't have to do when it comes to this recertification. Explain what's going on now with it. Uh, say it again with the... The recertification. And, uh, I mean, I, Iran has rejected whatever has it is. rejected that, what they proposed. And, you know, there's a 120-day clock that the president put in place. And he made certain demands on verification, uh, ballistic missiles, the sunset clause. And he has been pressing the Europeans very hard about being more forthcoming and to um, talk about additional sanctions, additional actions that could be taken uh, in order to keep the U.S. in. And, and they are very concerned about the U.S. dropping out of the the, uh, the JCPOA and so that they have talked about uh, some additional uh, sanctions to be placed, but what we and and but they're focusing often on the missiles, especially the long-range missiles. The announcements that Iran made during the week that they have these new uh, nuclear-propelled uh, rockets, and they have all sorts of things, which we have no evidence that they're really operational. And in fact, that most of the uh, satellite photographs show, show that these things are not really working. Uh, but the very fact that they are publicly challenging over the missile. Uh, aspect, which is certainly a violation of a U.N. Security Council resolution, not of the JCPOA. So what, the, the White House is going to be facing some really serious issues. There was one big development in this regard, yeah. and that was the, from satellite photos that showed Iran was establishing another base. And this came through Fox News from in, the in satellite uh, information, and uh, now we, we hear that 
the Russians have prevented the Iranians from actually taking this space in Tartus, which would have been a place where they could have stored short and long-range missiles. It's within striking distance of Israel. <coughs> Something Israel said that they would not ever uh, tolerate. So right now we're in a very delicate state in regard to what the future uh, status will be. The, the Iranians feel that the, the Europeans certainly are not going to break with them. They all have these you know, array of deals that they want to that they want to conclude and uh, have financial interests, uh, even though they don't think about their long-term interests when they, when they do that. But the, the, um, uh, the clock will run out and the administration will have to make a choice at some point. Um, and, and this, how many, are there other bases that Iran has in other areas or essentially whatever they've already set up, Israel has taken care of aside from the one you just mentioned? Oh no, they have, first of all, you have bases in, in, and presence in Lebanon, you have other presences in Syria, and certainly in Iraq. Uh, they're all over, and they're, and they're all building bases. They're in Qatar, they're in Somalia, they're in Sudan, they're in, you know, so many places around the region, in Africa, and the, um, you know, the rejection by them of the uh, Zarif saying that he, he you can't set conditions, one party, having a multilateral international community is fully aware that these conditions, uh, that none of the conditions the U.S. set is even worth considering. Well, if they're not worth considering, then there's nothing left to negotiate, and a decision will have to be made. But they, Iran is continuing to consolidate its position, and Israelis have been remarkably open in their criticism of Washington, of the of what appears to be the lack of concern in Europe as well, about the increasing hold that Iran has in Syria. And, you know, this is not a distant um, challenge. Here you have a country that a thousand miles from its borders is threatening another country. You don't have that in many circumstances. So this is a, a, a great concern, and, and uh, the fact that uh, they don't see enough action is is um, a real concern. When Gilad Erdan spoke to the President's Conference last week, he called for greater American involvement, and he said Iran is going to turn Syria into a puppet state, and each day they entrench themselves more. And uh, he said that if the U.S. chooses not to be a major player in shaping the future of Syria, then others will. What surprises me is your evaluation of this American administration, U.S. administration, with the, with the presence of Iran in Syria, I thought that this administration is so much better at it than the previous one that they'd be lauded for the way they're handling it. But as you say, they seem to be ignoring it. Would you say similar to the previous administration? No, I, I wouldn't say that. I, I would. I, I'm quoting to you what uh, the feeling was that we heard right. in Israel. We heard from military people and others, not just directed at the U.S., but we don't expect much from the Europeans, and that there is concern that the, you know that there's not enough attention being paid to this. And that the um, Iranians are take you know take advantage of any opening anything to advance their position. And one of their major goals is to be able to threaten Israel. And you know this is uh, uh, there is because you have a facing a real deadline, which is I think May twelfth. Um, Congress has to reassess and reissue the terms under which we're going to be willing to work with the, the, the JCPOA. So it puts uh, added focus on all of this. But yes, there is there was disappointment expressed to us 
uh, about the, the strength of the American commitment. America is involved in fighting ISIS in the South, but you know Russia continues to play a, a dominant role with a minimal involvement, and we see Iran and others expanding their their influence there. Uh, does it apply to other areas as well? Because to me, this is a little bit of a revelation. We know how how much cooperation there is between Israeli and American intelligence. If the U.S. is slightly slacking off in this area when it comes to Iran and Syria, are there other places as well that you heard about during the conference trip from different representatives where they would that where they would hope that America would step up their game? Well, we heard a lot, and we heard it when we traveled in the Gulf. Uh, and um, everybody relies on the United States. Everybody looks right. to the United States, and I understand they can't do everything. Uh, U.S.-Israel military and uh, strategic cooperation is at unparalleled level. It's it's incredible. This week, yeah, the Juniper Cobra, Cobra exercises going on with thousands of Americans coming there. This time it's focused on missile, joint missile defense, integrating their capacities of the United States and Israel in terms of uh, responding to offensive missile attacks. And uh, across the whole country, from north to south, there are exercises going on, joint exercises. So it shouldn't be misread or exaggerated in terms of the level of cooperation. Obviously, this, this administration has been as pro-Israel as one could hope. Uh, but the, the the question is what where resources are allocated and how uh, and how they view the role in Syria. Maybe they don't want to get engaged, but then we're going to be facing an outcome which will be very detrimental to American interests. Yeah, that's for sure. Israel. Uh, report this week that uh, Israel's ambassador to Washington advised American Jewish leaders not to meet with Qatar's emir last fall during the Arab leader's last visit to New York, but failed to dissuade them. Now, you've explained to us the importance of you and others in leadership positions meeting with uh, with Gulf state leaders, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but it, it's got to be somewhat disconcerting that the ambassador is not thrilled with it. How do you reconcile all this? I don't. I don't know why it's necessary to. He, uh, I will tell you that every military leader I met in Israel encouraged these contacts. Not everybody. There are people who went under different terms. And I went for one day. I had very serious meetings with a very serious agenda, and I left at the end of that day. So I don't know, you know, that applies to everybody or everything. It's uh, it, it is clearly something behind us because it's an exploitative situation where. Every day they write another article repeating the same things over and over and over again. And whether the ambassador is behind it or somebody else, for whatever reasons that they have, uh, I think it's counterproductive. I think they've made the issue that it's not the visits that really matter. They would have just been dissipated into into time, and, and there were no reports on any of them until the very people who say that they are opposed to it. And yet those same people often are associated with the worst elements and uh, uh, so it's incomprehensible to me, but this, um, you know, that they made a public, uh, a, an ongoing public discussion of it and attacking certain people, um, it just, it, it just it serves the opposite purpose if that, in fact, was their intent. I get all that, but the ambassador's a little different, right? Doesn't Why? Fit, he, fit, he, he, he fits what he does based on what he thinks, but I, I, I don't know. Maybe he, he has to explain it. So you'll have to have him on on Friday morning. 
<laughs> okay, it doesn't have, <laughs> doesn't have to be a Friday. It could be or any time. Thursday or but that's Monday. it. That's yeah. interesting. Okay, so uh, you're right. He's entitled to his opinion. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world, the web, and AlchemSegal.com, and the Segal Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Shushan Purim morning at JM the AM. We've got 10 minutes left with Mr. Honeline because we're heading to York, Pennsylvania. That's right. Mr. Honeline's home state. Could you imagine that's where Yeshiva University is going to be playing its first ever NCAA um, a Division Three March Madness game, Malcolm, in your home state of Pennsylvania. What? A, how ironic, huh? Did you import some players or something? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't do anything. But they've done. They've done a great job over the last few years, and look where they've gotten. I, I, I don't even know if you've seen any of the articles, but my gosh, you can actually represent the Jewish people in glorified fashion on a basketball court. How do you like that? That sounds pretty good. I mean, that, uh, it's pretty. Amazing. It's really remarkable. Um, so down south. Uh, it seems that Egypt is uh, is fortifying its military um, presence in the Sinai. We have very often discussed that Israel, both north and south, could be facing very difficult situations. Is it? Could there be a time where Israel and Egypt together are actually fighting the same military fight against Hamas or whatever terror group is dominating in the Sinai area? Absolutely, we are doing. It. They are doing it. Yeah, but it's not an active military move at the moment, is it? I mean, they're not. They're not at war. Israel? Yeah. Israel is at war with the elements in, in uh, the Sinai because it's the same elements that are operating uh, against them from Gaza, and it's the same terrorist elements that pose a threat to Israel, pose a threat to Egypt, that uh, ISIS's intent is not just against the government of Egypt. It's obviously they and the other groups that are al-Qaeda's and um, the multitude of terrorist entities that are operative there. Uh, the security of Egypt in alone and of itself is a vital Israeli security interest, certainly the impact that it has on Gaza, where a lot of the weapons flow and, and aid and other things go through and the connections. So Israel, whatever degree that they are involved, actively or not, that's for history books to tell, but there's certainly a, a vital Israeli interest, and um, Egypt has acknowledged that uh, Israel has uh, maybe with drones or other things assisted but, um, you know, Egyptian warplanes are flying along the Israeli-Egyptian border. And as President Sisi said to me, nobody has to worry about a stray bullet. And it's a remarkable development in and of itself. I understand that. But the last time Israel was involved in, a, in an actual ground war in that area was 2014, right? There's been no actual ground war in that area. Right, right. And we've never really had the visual of both Israel and Egypt fighting actively the same war. Well, I don't think we should interpret it as troops on the ground engaged. Uh, I think that uh, Israel is supportive of, of Egypt, but it's the Egyptian troops that are, are engaged in the Sinai directly. And whatever supportive efforts Israel can give them, they, they are committed to. By the way, we keep seeing more and more photos of um, discovered tunnels, um, you know, under underneath the border. Uh, I, I, I'm just curious, is there, is there, and they may have told you this actually in one of the briefings uh, last week, is there a, a statistic about whether there are many fewer than they were, or it's just as rampant as it was? They keep trying, but no, the Israel's um, uh, counter uh, efforts are impactful, that they are you know, building this uh, underground and above-ground barrier, which is frustrating the uh, terrorists because they cannot penetrate, and, and as you know, this is a highly technical thing where they have sensors and where they have, um, it goes down a couple hundred feet and above ground a hundred feet, but it's also 
uh, if they detect a tunnel, it fills it immediately with uh, um, like concrete or something, something that, that will fill it. So, A, they can detect much faster. I don't know it's that, that many. It's just that when you see it, it becomes very obvious because these are, you know, serious operations. And remember, the ones that they talked about this week were on the Gaza side. Mm-hmm. So the question is, are they crossing, are they penetrating into Israel? That they build and attempt to build tunnels all the time, and they go deeper and wider uh, from Gaza. But the test is, do they cross the border and threaten Israel then? All right, understood. All right, last week we ended as the news was breaking about the embassy in Jerusalem. Uh, So two pieces. Number one. Pretty remarkable. This is going to be done a lot faster than we thought because the White House would like this done by the 70th anniversary. I, I would assume that means on the secular calendar, 70th on the Jewish calendar will be in April, but on the secular calendar of the uh, of the uh, State of Israel's founding. And then the second piece, which I mentioned last week, uh, which was Shelley Adelson, uh, Sheldon Adelson actually uh, offered to pay for the building of the embassy. So what do you think of the timing and what do you think of his offer? So I think the timing will be May 14th or so, 16th. They will have a, a ceremony where they will do a formal uh, opening. It will be probably in Arnona in the existing consular facility. Uh, this will be a temporary uh, arrangement. Ultimately, to build an embassy will take a long time. So they didn't want to delay the actual move. And I think Ambassador Friedman has been very, um, been a very strong advocate, articulate advocate of this. Um, and they will therefore have, be able to have him and a, a key staff there, uh, and then over time look at building, and then they can see. I don't know whether it's ever been done that somebody has built an embassy for the United States someplace, but <laughs> I think it was generous on his part, but I don't know if it's realistic. Yeah, I'm sure they're looking into the legalities and the... Uh and the logistics of all that, right? I don't have to call it the Adelson Embassy of the United States, you know, or something. <laughs> well, they figure if it's in Israel, it's going to have a plaque somewhere, you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely, it's going mean, you know, to be flashing lights or something. Why you know? wouldn't it? Um, so you left Israel, and Prime Minister Netanyahu seemed to be in even hotter water than when we last spoke about the cases that are being uh, um, suggested by the uh, by the police, by the authorities to the uh, Attorney General. Um, regarding all these things. Do you think that, uh, is there any reason to believe that he's any less likely of surviving all this now that it seems that the charges have become more serious? I don't know. The latest poll shows we could would get 30-some seats. Wow. So he keeps going up. The more charges, the more it goes up. The, it was 28 last week. I see this week something, like 36. The um, uh, So, it, and unfortunately today he's being questioned by police about another case. I don't know if it's the Bezik or related to Bezik or not, but he is being questioned today on the eve of his visit to the United States next week. Uh, he will be speaking at the APAC conference in Washington, and he's to come to New York for a day, and then we don't know exactly how long, um, but I assume that the police will let him go. The, the, <laughs> so, the, 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 you know, it, it, it certainly has to be a major distraction and, you know, there's so many cases and every day something new, you know, has a cumulative impact on confidence. But every poll shows that the people of Israel, when they ask bottom line, who would you want to be prime minister? They say Netanyahu. So uh, nobody else has emerged as a real challenge to him. And I think most people don't want to see it go to elections at this time. And I think most of the parties don't want to because they don't see that there'll be a major change. In fact, if it's going to that poll, maybe they'd emerge even stronger. 
but the real the value of an election to him is that all investigations, everything freezes for the entire time of the election. And you need at least three months to call an election, advance notice. So an election would take, let's say, four months to happen. During those four months, all these investigations freeze. And uh, so that would relieve him of some of the pressure. And then if he would get a new mandate, it would be obviously a statement to the, <coughs> to the courts and everyone. I so get, it's I, I very get, complicated. I get all that, but as you and I have, uh, as, as you and I have discussed, be careful what you wish for. That strategy doesn't always work. That that's true. And nobody, I don't think anybody wants to see disruption. Certain people don't want to see prime minister humiliated publicly. And you know the problem is with the media today is that everybody can make a charge. Everybody can just throw firebombs. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether they're true. It doesn't matter how substantiated they are. Uh, in this case, of course, you have police investigations and stuff that are going to go on behind it. But, you know, people should be very wary of what they read and what they hear and not just jump to conclusions about uh, about these sensitive issues. Um, all right. As I said, we only have a couple of minutes left because of our journey to York, Pennsylvania. Go YU Max. I got to tell you, something has to be done about the Poland situation. I, I don't know if it's a good idea or not to follow the lead of some Jewish organizations that I've called for literally a complete boycott on the country and certainly no travel there and possibly even the suspending the youth trips there, which you know are significant. But, I mean, I, I think they, they've they got to understand what type of PR situation this has caused. And I would suspect that the Polish authorities would prefer to clean this thing up. Am I right or wrong? Yes. And, you know, now they've referred it to the Constitutional Court. So this is a way, a ladder for them to climb down. And I think that we should give them a chance to, to work that out. At the same time, I mean, it's an educational opportunity for people to talk about. And I keep saying that we know that the Germans built the camps, but to deny the reality of the Polish complicity, of, uh, uh, and not of every Pole, and, and also of the Poles who, who were rescuers. So when you distort history, you you do not gain anything from it. And this is seen in the context of some other things that are happening there and, and in Europe generally. And people are rightfully sensitive. I think people shouldn't jump about canceling things. And I mean, are we punishing the kids from having the opportunity to say the March of the Living, where you have 15,000 kids already signed up to go and to march, and, and they have an incredible educational experience, and they go to Israel, then um, it's something to think about for the future, about whether these should continue. People say, well, there are other camps you can visit. I mean, most of the countries in Europe today don't have such great records when it comes to dealing with the anti-Semitism that we see rampant in so many places. The BDS movements, the uh, you have a BDS bank in, in uh in Germany, you have uh, Germany signing 31 arms deals with uh, Turkey. We see the rise of anti-Semitic incidents in, in all these countries. So I think that the um, um, and, and, and then you, and you have President Abbas calling for jihad in his speech last month, doing all these things. And yet you don't see the kind of criticisms and expressions of concern that that should be in the it goes to all of the issues that we deal with, whether it's Iran, whether it's the Islamic terrorism, et cetera, that we can't slack off. We have to be on top of all of these issues and addressing them in terms of their longer-term implications. 
And the, the question of Poland is, is not isolated to the one country. It's a question of what is happening in Europe, where we see these extremist movements, again, rearing their ugly heads from the left, extreme left and extreme right. Good point. Good point. And, right. and they have to be addressed. Right. And th- that you're right. It's a bigger picture that I didn't even think of when it comes to other countries. We do. It's funny. We all are. I think most of us are thinking of it as an isolated case. But that's a very important point. Um, all right. I thank you. I will give your Hatzlacha uh, Rabbah to the Yeshiva University Maccabees. And the good news, of course, folks, and the most important news item of the day is that Malcolm Honeline, no matter what position exactly uh, he will be holding at the President's Conference over the next few years, he has announced he'll be staying, thank God, with JM and the AM. And I applaud you for that and a very happy Shushan Purim. <laughs> Malcolm Holmine. I love when I make him smile. Malcolm Holmine is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Again, the biggest uh, piece of this uh, of this uh, development regarding the Conference of Presidents is that Malcolm Holmine is staying with JM and He'll be uh, able, thank God, to analyze the news of the week with us each and every week, and I thank him for that. And uh, based on our numbers, our uh, audience thanks him for that as well. 